This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, your love for us is so abundant. We would see it this morning. I pray you'd open our eyes, unstop our ears, and help us to see and to hear your goodness. Let us taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. So our gospel reading for today is among the most well-loved and most well-known stories in all of Scripture. And that's a beautiful thing. These are stories that we cherish. But there's also a great danger with texts like these, and it's the danger of over-familiarity. It's the danger that these holy words would become common for us and that we would cease to pay attention to them, that they'd become kind of like white noise or background noise for us. And Kenneth Jonathan was just telling us last week about the importance in the Christian life of attention, of paying close heed to where Christ is in the words of Scripture and of his presence in the world around us. And the danger of overfamiliarity with the biblical text is that we don't do this. It's that we already think we know what the point of the text is, and so we yawn and check out rather than paying attention to what the narrative is actually telling us. We need to allow these familiar stories to become strange to us again so that they can attract us and even shock and disturb us. In fact, I think if you're not somewhat disturbed by this story this morning, it's an indication that you're over-familiar with it. So we want to pay attention. And thankfully, the Lord has given us the tools that will enable us to do so. The task of defamiliarizing the Bible to ourselves is twofold. The first is to read the text intensively, to pay attention to the details and the cues that are within the story itself. And then secondly, to read it extensively, to read the Bible in big sections, to see how any passage fits together with the whole of the book of which it is a part and with the entirety of the Bible. Intensive and extensive reading. That's how we make the Bible strange again to us. And this latter task of reading extensively is especially critical when we look at the Gospels because the writers of the Gospels have been very intentional about how they have arranged the stories. The stories are always set in the way they are in order to make a theological point. So with our parable this morning, a shallow reading of the text is already kind of baked in to our translations. If you picked up almost any translation of the Bible today, the heading above this this parable will tell you what it's about. It's the parable of the prodigal son, right? But when we read this story again, we read it intensively and extensively, we come to see that this heading is actually not very helpful. This story is not only or even primarily about the younger son. It is primarily about the father, and secondarily, it is about the elder brother. One commentator goes so far as to say that a better title for this story would be a parable about a father's and a brother's response to the loss and restoration of the son. So you see, the the heading of the story actually has it quite backwards. The story is about where the story ends, in the father's love and in the response of the elder brother. Jesus' audience in this parable is extremely important if we want to understand the parable. And he speaks this parable to insiders, 
He speaks it to those who have always been in the Father's house. And this means, first and foremost, Israel. Because it was to seek and to save the lost of Israel for which Jesus came. But secondarily, it's also addressed to anyone who has been grafted into Israel, as Paul says in Romans. To every Christian who has been granted intimacy with the God of Israel in Christ. And we need to understand this point. This point is utterly crucial or the parable will not make sense to us. And if we read the text extensively in terms of where it falls in the Gospel of Luke, we see immediately that this is the case. Just before this parable in chapter 15, we read two other parables. The parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Now, neither of these parables contains any detail whatsoever about the sheep or the lost coin except that they're lost. What the parable The parables tell us is a great deal about the fanfare and the delight that occurs in heaven when a sinner returns to the love of God. And that's ultimately what the lost sheep and the lost coin are about. And Jesus says in verse 9 of chapter 15 that when the woman who has lost her coin sweeps her house and finds it, she gathers her neighbors for a giant raging party. And then Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And in verse 6, the parable of the lost sheep, he says likewise that when the lost sheep is found, the owner calls his friends and his neighbors together and he throws a giant raging party. He's detecting a theme here, aren't you? He says, rejoice with me for I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus says this in verse 7 as an interpretation of the parable. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. A lot of celebration that's happening in heaven at all times over sinners returning to the love of the Father. And therefore there ought to be a lot of celebration happening in his church on earth What about those 99 in this parable of the lost sheep? What about those 99 who supposedly don't need to repent? I think the righteous there ought to be in quotation marks. Because that's what this story, the parable of the prodigal son, is actually about this morning. They do, in fact, need to repent. They are insiders. They are those who have always been in the Father's house. But they have never known the Father. That's what the story of the elder brother is about. That's what the parable of the 99 sheep and the lost one sheep is about. Because again, these stories are told to insiders. And Jesus uses them as if they were ice axes to crack open the frozen hearts of the faithful to get them to see how beautiful and how vivid and how abundant the love of God is. And that love is not just for those obvious sinners who have come back in. It is also for the so-called righteous ones, the ones who have always been in the Father's home, those whose sins lie hidden in the recesses of their hearts. Because those sins that lie hidden in the recesses of our hearts turn our hearts to ice. It makes it so that we can no longer join in the massive angelic celebration that heaven is throwing whenever someone comes to their senses and returns home to the heart of the Father. Honestly, That is what our Christian life is all about. Can we join in that celebration and that joy? Can we get it into our imaginations deeply to see that that is what the heavenly throng is doing at all times as sinners come and repent? But I think it's safe to say 
that at least in the tradition of the church, we've really missed this message. It is precisely as the drama of the younger brother's profligate life and return to the father that the parable has fired the imaginations of countless people throughout the centuries, both in art and in literature. I did some study about this this week. One of the most fascinating examples I came across was the flowering of prodigal son plays in the 16th and 17th centuries in England and the Netherlands. And these were all focused, of course, on the prodigal's you know, journey away from the father and his profligate life and spending of everything he owns and living in poverty and then returning to the father. And one scholar who studied these plays in depth says that there's actually over 35 of them that were published before 1642 in English alone. I think that's pretty amazing, actually. And depictions of the life of the prodigal abound throughout Christian history. One scholar says that the younger brother's life was one of the most prominent subjects for medieval Renaissance and Baroque art. And depictions of it could be found on the ornamentation of the walls of houses and taverns and churches and stained glass windows, among collections of woodcuts and engravings, on cushions, bed hangings and coverlets, on stoneware jugs, goblet lids, and painted cabinets. Everywhere you looked, there was a picture of the prodigal son and his life. Talk about market saturation, man. Everybody knows this story. And these historic treatments in art and literature are certainly not wrong to draw attention to the drama of the younger son's story. And his foolishness and his great wickedness is actually the catalyst from which the whole action of the story unfolds. The great biblical scholar Kenneth Bailey, who, by the way, used to preach here a lot at Ascension, uh, says that the younger son's request for his half of the inheritance is not merely foolish and ungrateful and profligate. It's actually an utterly wicked curse that he's casting upon his father. Bailey writes that for 15 years, I've been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India and from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. The answer has always been emphatically the same. The conversation goes like this. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone have ever made such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? The request means he wants his father to die. See, the younger son is guilty of this terrible indifference towards the father's life and the father's love. Flannery O'Connor, who y'all know I love because I named my daughter after her, explained her stories by saying that for the hard of hearing, you have to shout. And for the almost blind, you have to draw large and startling figures. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's shocking insiders by saying, hey, check out how reprobate and how abominable this one is. Now, are you as excited when this one returns as the Father is? Or is your heart indifferent? Is it kind of like, meh? Or is your heart seething with rage because you've believed what the elder son believes, which is that the father cares more about what's happening with that son than about you. If that's the case, then repent and open yourself to the love of the father so that you might be part of the great feast. Everything he has is yours. You were always with him. You see, in almost all of these literary and artistic depictions, the older brother is completely absent from the action. When he is in the scene, he's often depicted out in the field where he begins in the, in the action of the story. And he's not central at all to the narrative or to the depiction. 
The central action is a morality tale about the evils of the younger brother's life. And so it becomes the occasion to scold wayward youth and to prompt them to return to the straight and the narrow. It becomes a defense, as it were, for the existing social order rather than calling those who were within the existing social order to repentance. It becomes a parable, in other words, that's spoken to outsiders rather than to insiders. And that's to lose sight, actually, to the main point of this story. And it's also why the elder brother doesn't seem to matter in any of these tellings. There's this great story I uncovered this week about the famous 19th century artist John Ruskin. You may not have heard of him, but he was among the most famous artists in 19th century Britain. And in about 1860, he was visiting an evangelical church where one Reverend Molyneux was preaching on the prodigal son. And he discoursed eloquently and extravagantly upon the prodigal son's life and his return to the straight and narrow. But after this address, Ruskin says, hey, that's nice, but what about the elder son, the one who remained with the father? And neither the pastor nor his congregation had ever entertained this question before. And Ruskin reports that after a minute or so of thought, the minister responded that the elder brother was merely a picturesque figure introduced to fill the background of the parable agreeably and contain no instruction or example for the well-disposed scriptural student. In other words, nothing to see here. Let's just move on. But you've got to remember, this is a parable that's spoken to insiders. And therefore, it's about the father and about the elder brother. All of us who are members at Ascension, this is a parable that's addressed to us. How will we react when the new wine of younger brothers and sisters coming back to the Father gets put into our old wineskins and bursts them? Will we create new culture, new wineskins for new wine, enraptured by the fact that God has privileged us living here at the very end of Christendom to have a front row seat to the action and to the party? Or will we grumble because our inheritance is being wasted on those who don't appreciate it? And if we grumble, what does that say about us and our need to repent? I can tell you that I take great comfort from the early church because what those Christians saw were droves and droves of younger brothers and sisters streaming in through the doors of the churches, coming into the fellowship because they came to their senses and they saw the beauty of God and the love of the Father and Jesus Christ and of his body. They didn't grumble because their traditions were being disturbed. They created new traditions. They created a catechumenate, a process which would allow those coming in to understand what it really meant to give their loyalty to Christ and what life together in the goodness of God would really look like. And they exhorted one another, don't practice partiality. Don't privilege rich over poor. Don't privilege one ethnic group over another, but love one another with the love of Christ. And the elder brothers in that context were able to come in. They were able to enjoy the party because they knew that everything finally came down to the love of the Father and his unshakable purpose to reconcile everyone and everything to himself in Christ Jesus. The great Catholic theologian Henry Nouwen has this to say about this parable. He has studied it in great depth. And also, he studied this painting in great depth. Great depth. And it ministered to him in a, in a serious depression that he suffered with. Here's what he says. Just as I do not know how the younger son accepted the celebration or how he lived with his father after his return, I also do not know whether the elder son ever reconciled himself with his father, his brother, or himself. What I do know is this, 
I know with unwavering certainty the heart of the Father. It is a heart of limitless mercy. If anyone has seen the movie Calvary, the priest in that movie says, the mercies of God are great. The limits of his mercies have not been set. That's what this parable is telling us. There's one depiction in the tradition of this whole series of artistic depictions of the prodigal son that I think gets it. And it's this one right here. It's, It's the painting of Rembrandt called The Prodigal Son. I've got a poster of it here on display thanks to Marilyn Chislagi. And I'm actually going to come out of the pulpit to describe it to you. I apologize to the choir because you guys can't see anything about it. And actually, it's it's small enough that if you're sitting in the back, you probably can't see any of of the detail. So I'd ask you, you know, after the service is over, please come up and spend some time, like, meditating on it, looking at its detail. The first thing I want you to notice about this painting is the majesty of the technique. I mean, look at how Rembrandt has used the technique of, of illumination and of shadow to highlight the foreground and the background of the action, of the surface meaning and the depth meaning of the, of the scene. And then notice the palette that he uses, the hues that he uses to depict this painting. I mean, there is gold here in the, in the, the foregrounded illumination, but it's a kind of a muted gold. And the rest of the colors in the painting are browns and reds and yellows. They're they're hues that are meant to suggest humility and ordinariness and a kind of quotidian character to what's happening in the scene. Mother Andrea, after the last service, came up to me and she said, hey, those are actually the color of terracotta, the color of earthen vessels. That's probably not insignificant, I think. But more important, I think, even than the technique is the symbolism that Rembrandt gives us here in this gorgeous painting. I mean, in the foreground of the action, you see the prodigal son, the younger son. And here he is kneeling in repentance in his rags before the father. Look at his face. His face is turned and and buried in his father's robe in a consolation. He feels the abundant love of the father. Don't you want that too? When I look at that, I long for that kind of intimacy with the father. And you see the father's arms outstretched and embracing the son, reconciling himself to, to the father and, and, and reconciling uh, the, the, the son to, um, to his sonship. And then the elder brother over here on the outside. I think this is among the most majestic details of this painting. If you look at the expression of the elder brother, you can't, you can't actually tell what he is thinking. His face is inscrutable. It's not condemnatory. You can't tell what he is thinking. It's as if he's standing there asking the question, do I come in? Do I accept this invitation? Do I believe that the love of the Father is for me and not just for my younger brother who's wasted everything? There's two more details I want want you to notice. First, in the background, in the shadow, there's two shadowy figures here. Rembrandt put them there intentionally. They're not in the scene in the prodigal son, in the parable of the prodigal son. But I read one scholar this week who unlocked this mystery for me. She says that in the, in the commentaries in the Gospel of Luke in the 17th century, there's a close pairing of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 and the parable of the prodigal son in chapter 15, as if to say that if you want to understand what this parable is about, you must read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you remember what that parable is about. 
The Pharisee comes into the temple assured of his righteousness. And he says, I thank you, O Lord, that you have not made me like this tax collector over here. And he leaves. The tax collector is on his knees and he beats his breast and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, guess which one went away justified and righteous and forgiven? It's the tax collector. And Rembrandt has painted that image into his painting. He said, if you want to understand the surface meaning of this painting, you must understand its interior depths. And Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, unlocks that for us. The Pharisee is here in the deep background. You can barely see him. You probably, if you're sitting far enough back, you probably can't see him at all. But here in the foreground is another figure who's kneeling and beating his breast. And you know who it is? It's Rembrandt. He's painted himself into the painting to show, I am the tax collector. I am the penitent one. And he's saying that if you want to be reconciled with the Father, if you want to experience that intimacy, that abundant love, we must become like the penitent tax collector and like the penitent son. Because it's not only the son of the younger, of the younger brother, sorry, it's not the heart of the younger brother that is only alienated from the father. It is also the heart of the elder brother that is alienated from the father. Both need reconciliation. And the only way for that to happen is for us to humble ourselves, to become like the tax collector, and to become like the younger son. To be reconciled, to hear and to see the affirmation of the father. Rembrandt's painting illuminates this story in, I think, a way that it has never before or since been illuminated. This painting and this story illuminates the dark corners of our hearts. It invites us to search ourselves, to ask the question, are we alienated from the Father? Do we also need to come in and join the party? Do we need to experience the magnificence of his love today? I don't know where you are today. Are you a younger brother returning from a long and painful exile and sin to the powerful love of God? And if so, I want to invite you to this table. I invite you to encounter the intimacy and the, and the love of the Father in this meal, which Jesus gave to us. Or are you an elder brother who has been in exile even while staying at home? If you're an elder brother, I invite you to this table as well. This meal, this feast is also for you. It is given to us that we might experience the abundance of the love of God. And in either case, the message of this parable remains the same for all of us. Be reconciled to the Father and to one another. That is the point of this parable, and that is the point of Lent. It's so that we might slow down and become quiet, and become attentive to that great and flaming love of the Father, that we might see that our sins no longer separate us because of the magnificent love that has been bestowed upon us in Jesus, that we might be reconciled to the Father, that He might rejoice over us too, that He might rejoice over us with singing, as Zephaniah says, as we come and repent. If that's you today, I invite you to this feast. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.